The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Coming up this week, we'll talk about Condo, the initiative in which galleries share their space with others from overseas. Joining me is the London gallerist Kate McGarry, who's welcomed Edouard Malang to East London from Hong Kong. But first this week, female old masters. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that last week we discussed the upcoming exhibition at the Prado Museum in Madrid of two female Renaissance artists, Lavinia Fontana and Sofonispa Anguissola. Meanwhile, just before the holidays, the National Gallery in London unveiled its newly acquired and restored painting by the Baroque painter Artemisia Gentileschi, self-portrait as St Catherine of Alexandria. The National Gallery work will be sent on tour to various UK venues from March, and Artemisia will be the subject of a major show at the National in 2020. The art market, too, is showing increasing interest in work by female old masters, with several coming up for auction in the coming months. Later, I'll speak to Jordana Pomeroy, the co-curator of a 2007 exhibition at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C., about the increasing prominence of women artists from these earlier periods. But now I'm joined by Leticia Treves, the National Gallery's curator of later Italian, Spanish and French 17th century paintings, to talk about Artemisia and that new acquisition. Leticia, can you tell me first more about Artemisia Gentileschi, the woman and the artist? Sure. I mean, she's obviously a name now that many people have heard of, not just people sort of in the art world or interested in art. Um, and I'd say that's quite a recent um, occurrence. Um, she was really sort of rediscovered in a way um, in the 1970s. She featured an exhibition in L.A. on women artists um, and a number of her works were exhibited then. And so she sort of came to the fore then. Um, and a number of feminist art historians focused on her and her work um, throughout the latter part of the 20th century. But it's only really since she started being the subject of shows, a monographic show in 2001 in New York and then more recent exhibitions that I think she really came to a kind of wider public. And I think now she is not necessarily a household name, but I think people have heard of her. Um, I've heard of her as an artist, but also her life story. Um, I think a lot of the interest around her and in sort of people's view of her as a kind of empowered woman derives from her biography, rather like Caravaggio's own biographical story somewhat sort of overshadows the art. Um, but I think Artemisia as an artist now is coming to the fore. And I think that's, um, you know, I'm looking forward to working on this show in 2020 because I think it's very much focusing on her as a painter. Um, obviously, you can't ignore what was happening in her life and the big events that, that, that obviously influence her life and her art. But it is very much on her artistic abilities. Can you tell us something of that biography then before we get into, into the, to the painting that the Nationals acquired? Sure. Artemisia is seen very much as a sort of exception. And I think it's important to say she was quite exceptional, that she wasn't the only woman artist of the 17th century. I mean, there had been other successful artists before her. Um, But she was born in Rome um, to Orazio Gentileschi, who was a a well-established painter in Rome, and a lady called Prudencia. And Artemisia's mother died when she was just 12. So she was effectively brought up in a a sort of male household. So brought up by her father, um, and she had three brothers. She was, in fact, one of five, but two two died. Uh, And the brothers and Artemisia were all trained by Orazio in his own workshop. But it's clear that she was the one that he saw had greater talent than than the brothers. Um, And... Sort of everything changed when um, she 
was raped by Agostino Tassi. Tassi was a, a, an extremely successful painter um, of sort of trompe l'oeil architecture and who was working at that time with Orazio uh, on a large project, the Casino delle Muse, and he was brought in to teach Artemisia perspective. Um, and he raped her um, and they clearly had sexual relations for some months and then he was brought to trial by Orazio. And this is very famous, it's perhaps the most famous episode in Artemisia's life because remarkably all the trial documents actually survive or a large portion of them survive. So you can actually read Artemisia's own words in the witness box and you read the accusations against Tassia and it's quite extraordinary to have that kind of sort of documentary evidence still survive from the 17th century. Um, and he's effectively found guilty of deflowering her because what Orazio is bringing against Tassi is the fact that not only did he rape his daughter, but he didn't do the honourable thing and marry her afterwards. Um, and this is the, the sort of idea of the lack of honour, the, the sort of dishonour on his family. That's very much what's motivating the trial. Um, so he's found guilty, um, although though his punishment's never enforced. And Artemisia is married off two days later to the brother of her defence lawyer and with him moves to Florence. Um, and obviously this this episode was obviously a great sort of tragedy in her life. I mean, when she describes in her own words this really violent um, attack on her, um, it is quite harrowing. But I think it, if that had never happened, her life would have been very different. She would have carried on working probably in her father's studio in Rome. But as a result, her sort of enforced move to Florence really was the making of her. And it's incredible to think sort of how she turned the situation around and really... I mean, I like to think in Florence she really became Artemisia. Um, she found her own sort of artistic voice. Um, and it's where she really gained independence in Florence. And she's there for about seven years. And then she comes back to Rome, very different sort of person. She's very much in demand, um, very successful. And we know this from letters from her husband that survived saying, you know, they've got cardinals and princes around the house all the time. She, Artemisia doesn't even have time to eat. She's so busy. Um, and then in 1630, she settles in Naples, where she lives till the end of her life, at least sort of 25 years, and runs a very successful workshop. And so she pretty much stays in Italy, except for a brief trip to London in the late 1630s, which in itself was quite unusual for a woman to be travelling internationally alone. Indeed. Uh, just and one thing that, about the biography that makes her have a certain currency today is, as you say, in those documents around the trial, it's clear that, that she is being put on trial in the trial and, and in fact, is, is, is tortured in, as, as part of that process. I mean, a lot has been made of that. And I think there's been a very much a more measured reading of those documents in a wider sort of um, frame, if you like, uh, particularly uh, one social historian called Elizabeth Cohen's done quite a lot of work on actually the documents relating to the trials of young virgins in Rome in that period. Um, and um, it seems there's a sort of standard way of leading these trials. And actually, it falls quite within that. I wouldn't call it a pattern, but within that. But if you really read carefully the words, I mean, she was tortured by using the Sibylla, which were these ropes tightened around her fingers whilst she was in uh, the box. Um, but the judge asked her beforehand, is it all right if we do this? And it's clear if you really read the, the, the original Italian, it is clear that it's in a way that they're, they're asking if they can torture her to in a way prove her innocence, in a sense, sort of, uh, you know, just to, to make sure that what she's saying is actually true. And, and it is while she's they're torturing her with the Sibylla that she says, you know, it's true, it's true, it's true. She repeats that what she says is true. Um, so I think in a way it was sort of in support of her innocence in this situation. I think you can already sort of read in, in the language that's used that the, it's in a way a way to catch Tassie out.
Right. Now, the, the making of her in artistically, as you say, was, was her move to Florence. Can mm. you say something about her experience there? What kind of education, mm. for instance, did she, did she have there? And, and was she in another painter's studio straight away? No, I think the really remarkable thing is that she sets up independently. Um, you know, she was trained in her father's studio. You know, these sort of fa- a kind of family workshop tradition existed since the Renaissance and not just in Italy. But it was often a father to son sort of workshop. So it's quite unusual that female members of the family would be involved. But as I say, Artemis is not the first. You know, Lavinia Fontana, her father was very um, successful. So you know, in a way, her sort of training in Rome wasn't unusual. It was perhaps a bit unusual because she was a woman. But the whole, you know, learning from your father, your trade from your father wasn't unusual. The fact of her moving to Florence and having to set up independently is the thing that really made her, I think. Um, we have no real indication of her having a studio with, with pupils as such. She worked effectively from home. Her studio was in her home. Um, her husband was apparently a painter, but very sort of modest <laughs> kind of renown. Um, and she was the very first mem- female member of the Academy in Florence. She was a member there from 1616. So, you know, she, if she arrived in around 1613, within two, three years, she's already really established herself there. So it really shows incredible determination, but also kind of recognition of her skill. And I think it's partly to do with her resilience. I think um, it also had to do with who she um, came into contact with in Florence, and like you say, her education, but also the circles she moved in. One of her great sort of protectors there was Michelangelo um, the Bonarroti, the younger, who was the great nephew of the great Michelangelo. And um, in fact, Artemisia's only documented picture in Florence is in the ceiling of Casa Bonarroti still today. And there she is alongside other Florentine artists of her of her time. So she seems to have integrated herself quite quickly in Florence. Um, and one of her close friends was Cristofano Allori, one of the greatest painters in, in the 17th century in Florence, who was also a godfather to her son, Cristofano. So she clearly immediately set her, you know, sort of entered into artistic circles, intellectual circles. She was a friend of Galileo um, and she worked for the Medici. And did, did she carry her Caravaggesque style that she would have learned in Rome with her to Florence? Or did she very much incorporate new styles and influences from her surroundings? It's so interesting you say that because it's such a hot topic that's so discussed because she has been called a chameleon. And I think as a result of this now, many pictures get attributed to her that aren't necessarily by her because you can sort of use it as a dustbin. Well, she's chameleonic. She changes all the time. I think in the in the kind of... Uh, broader sense, she is quite a chameleon. She can adapt her style, but it's part of her sort of business strategy, I think. So, you know, she spends 25 years working in Naples and her pictures look really Neapolitan. But of course they would. She's been living in Naples. She's working for Neapolitan patrons. Um, And I think when she moves to Florence, I think actually more than Caravaggio, um, it is her father. It is Orazio's pictures. And Orazio's handling of paint that's most kind of present in her mind. And in the picture that the National Gallery bought, um, you know, the thing that became very clear as, as the picture was being cleaned is just that technically the way she paints the flesh and so on, it's very, Arazzo is still very present in her mind. I think what's true in Florence is she's looking at these Florentine artists she's frequenting. She's using a kind of tonality that you see in Florentine painting at that time. She's also painting pictures for Medici taste. So that also makes sense. But when she comes back to Rome in 1620, that's when Caravagism, you know, after Caravaggio's death, 10 years after, um, is when Caravagism is really at the height of its sort of popularity. And I think there is a, definitely a renewed interest in this heightened naturalism, start lighting, and you can see that in the pictures of the 1620s. Can you say more about um, the circumstances in which she would have created the specific work which the National now has? Well, the conservation has been really interesting because, you know, I think 
a lot of ink has been spilled on Artemisia, but not a huge amount has been written about her technique. And I think this has actually played such an important role in actually understanding Artemisia. There's been a lot written about, you know, datings and attributions and also sort of the, the kind of more... Uh, gender-specific interpretation of her pictures and the iconography. But I think her technique is absolutely fundamental to understanding Artemis and actually sort of weeding out the pictures that aren't by her that are currently sort of sitting in this sort of limbo. Um, so during the conservation of the National Gallery painting, we noticed similarities with, obviously, Orazio's painting technique. We noticed differences. Um, the picture is very closely related to two paintings, one that's in Hartford, um, Connecticut, at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, which shows is a self-portrait of her playing the lute, and the other is a St. Catherine in the Uffizi. And the, the, the sort of similarity between these pictures is not just sort of superficial, formal similarities, but she's taken direct borrowings from one and the other. This is almost a, a kind of amalgamation of these two other pictures, which, you know, sheds light on her practice. You know, how did she, did she transfer these designs? Did she use tracings? I mean, we know her father, Orazio, uses tracings a lot. Um, did she have these three pictures in the studio once? You know, um, did the, the sort of composition evolve in the National Gallery painting? Did she know exactly what she was doing from the very beginning? I mean, there are certain technical aspects of the picture that suggest it did evolve into a St. Catherine um, and perhaps didn't start its life as a St. Catherine. So I'm very interested also in how she uses her own image. So the picture in Hartford is clearly a self-portrait, very kind of characterised face. And ours is a little bit idealised. And I think... There's been too much discussion in the past about whether a picture is or isn't a self-portrait. I think there's a kind of disguised self-portraiture in a lot of her works where um, she would clearly have expected people to kind of vaguely recognise her features and know it was painting by a woman of a woman who looked like Artemisia. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a self-portrait in a very literal sense. I think that's really that's a really interesting aspect, isn't it? Because how much of it is an is it almost like an advert for, for her capabilities and also for, for her her. Uh, personality for her strength or, mm. or strength of character um, it's, it's very easy to read biography into it isn't it because it's such a striking image and we know about this history of hers yes I mean I've had inquiries from the public since we announced the acquisition also saying you know um are there, you know, signs of torture on her fingers? She's St. Catherine after all. St. Catherine was, you know, tied to a spiked wheel. Um, and that's the story. And, you know, is it if it's her, has her hands been tortured? You know, can you see any marks on her hands? And I think it is a bit literal and a bit taking it too far. I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, she might have identified a little bit with St. Catherine, but I think one can be a little far-fetched in that, in reading her in every Judith, Susanna, Cleopatra and, you know, um, tortured saint. <laughs> um, but I think she knew perfectly well that using her own image in her paintings or or, or a type that certainly would have been recognised as, as reminding, you know, at least informed by Artemisia's own features, would have had an additional sort of appeal. It is self-propaganda to a degree. And there's a practical element as well. You know, she's working in a studio. We know models are expensive. She says this in letters later in life, you know, complains about having to paint this picture with eight figures in it and the models cost so much money it's hard to get your hands on good models. Um, and she's got a mirror, you know, so she's going to use her own face. Um, but I think there's definitely a sort of self-marketing um, element to it as well. What accounts for the fact that she needed to be rediscovered if she was successful in her own time? I think it's so like the story of Caravaggio in a way. It's about taste. And I think her very naturalistic paintings by the end of the 17th century were pretty much, you know, out of favour. And there was a kind of much greater sort of interest in classicism. And, and like Caravaggio, like her father Orazio, these artists were just forgotten in the 18th and 19th century. Um, and... You know, it just took her a little bit longer than Caravaggio to be to be sort of rediscovered, if you like. And in terms of 
the National's own collection. There are some women artists in the collection, but this is the first work by her that you've acquired. Let's mm. say it's the beginning of, of the collection. It seems to me really wonderful that it is a self-portrait mm. that, that's the first work by Artemisia that's come into your holdings. I mean, she's been on the wish list. I've said this a number of times on the National Gallery's wish list for some time. I mean... My predecessors, you know, curators in my area, including our current director, Gabriele Finaldi, when he was curator there, we all put forward our desire to our trustees in a way of our sort of wish list artists, not necessarily specific pictures. Um, and she, like her father, Orazio, have been on there because we have these three great Caravaggios. We don't really have many Italian Caravaggios paintings. And there have been a large number of Artemises coming on the market in the last sort of 10 years. Um, but it's to find the right one and the right one. And, you know, if if we had to sort of put down a wish list on paper you know you'd say well I want a Florentine picture it's definitely her best sort of period where she really kind of finds her herself you know her, her sort of artistic language um, I'd love to have a self-portrait you know although she's famous for these very violent scenes I I, I might struggle a bit to, to, to hang a you know either the Naples or Fitzy Judith in my galleries every day. I don't know. We've got equally violent pictures. But, you know, I like the fact that this is in some ways quite an atypical. It's, it's a bit of a quieter picture. It's incredibly strong and powerful, but it's a sort of less obviously violent picture. There are a lot of very sensual pictures that have come on the market as well. And that's something one associates with Artemisia. But um, it, this picture just hit so many, you know, ticked so many boxes for us. And it was the right picture at the right time for the right price. And we just felt it was an opportunity too good to be missed. And it did sort of emerge almost out of nowhere, didn't it? Or had you been aware of it for some time, that it existed? No, so it was it was discovered in France in 2017 and was put up at auction in um, December of that year. Um, and we weren't made aware of it beforehand. Um, and uh, as soon as the auction happened, in fact, a couple of days before the auction, we were made aware of it. And... Um, I immediately, in fact, I was on maternity leave. So when I came back to work, I immediately got onto the case of trying to find who bought it because I was very keen to see it. I mean, I was very interested in it, but I wanted to see it more from a kind of art historical point of view. It was quite an interesting uh, picture from photographs. Um, and the moment it had its export license, as soon as it arrived in London, I went to see it the day after our director came to see it. And then it, it actually came to the gallery immediately for us to, to we spent some months doing technical and scientific investigation of the picture, um, really to assess its condition. We did all the sort of due diligence concerning provenance. You know, these things take time, and it was presented to trustees later in the year. So, and now it's up in the galleries, and you, you indicated that you'd had some reaction to it. It seems to me that it's really sort of stoked a sort of fire in mm. in the audience of the national, and that it, that people really seem already attached to it. It, we felt that the moment we announced, actually, we announced the acquisition in July, although the picture wasn't on view yet. And um, the sort of, well, you often get a sense of the public reaction through social media now, through the number of emails one gets and all this sort of thing. Um, and there was so much excitement. And we also felt it within our own staff, you know, within the gallery. Um, and then throughout the summer, we followed the progress of the conservation through these short films that, you know, you can still see through our website. And that was a way to kind of keep people engaged because it's unusual for us to buy a and then not give people access to it straight away. Um, and then there was sort of an even greater excitement when it actually went on the wall. And it's been so wonderful to see because there were, in the days running up to Christmas, I would go up and look at it in Central Hall and there was always a crowd in front of it and people who'd read about it in the press and who'd come to see it, made a trip especially to see it. And it's, it, it did you know, fill me with joy that this picture really is you know, a, an acquisition of a painting, particularly a collection like the National Gallery, 
should be transformative for that collection. And it should be a picture that either speaks artistically across the collection, but also speaks to people and might reach people that our pictures don't normally reach. And I think this Artemisia really does that. And do you feel that this is the first of a series now of acquisitions of women artists, which we'll see entering the National Gallery collection? I think although we have a strategy towards acquisition, so we identify sort of gaps in the collection, I think sometimes you have to be opportunistic and there has to be the right picture at the right time. Um, and we didn't buy the Artemisia because she was a painting by a woman artist. I mean, that has nothing to do with the Me Too movement. It was an art. She is an artist we wanted to represent for some time. It's the right picture and it came up and we were able to acquire it. Um, I'd say there are plenty of other women artists we should represent. You know, if the right Mary Cassatt came along, if the right Sofonisba, um, Anguissola came along, you know, it'd be great to represent these artists. Um, but we shouldn't be buying them just because they're white women artists if they're not very good pictures. You know, I mean, I think you have to be incredibly selective and choose, choose the, you know, when you have the calibre of collection the National Gallery has, to add to that, you really need to get pictures of the highest order. And whether they're by male or female artists, in a way... Um, it's not the sort of defining reason for buying them. And this idea of sending it on a sort of pop-up tour, mm. it it's something that galleries have been doing a lot more in recent years. But this is because it's such a, a landmark picture for you to acquire and it's quite quickly leaving your walls to travel. Mm. It seems to me it's quite a, a, a major gesture from the National to say mm. this is a national picture, not just a national gallery mm. picture. Absolutely. And I think um, there was a lot of discussion about whether it should go on our walls at all or whether it should tour immediately. And it was clear, though, during the run of the conservation and the films that there was so much excitement from people to see it that we felt actually to give the public in London an opportunity to see it on our walls and also our regular visitors and um, lovers of the National Gallery to come and see it. It was quite important before it, it did go on this in this supposed tour, although tour's not quite the right thing. It, it is a very um, unusual thing for us to do um, because, as we've said, I can't talk too much about it, but um, it will appear in quite unusual places. The idea is very much not sending it to museums. We want to try and reach people who don't visit museums, who aren't visiting in art galleries. We want to try and reach these people with this picture because I think it's the kind of picture you can do it with. It, it touches people in so many different ways. Um, so we're starting, as we announced, with Glasgow Women's Library. And can you tell us any more? I can't disclose where else it's going, but um, it will be back in London by next summer. So it won't be touring for too long. Um, and the idea is that then it will be here for a number of months before we open the show. We'll keep an eye on the art newspaper website. We'll know that they'll be updating our readers. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you very much. You can see Artemisia Gentileschi's self-portrait of St Catherine of Alexandria at the National Gallery in London until the end of February. It'll begin its UK tour at the Glasgow Women's Library on the 6th of March and she'll be there until the 19th of March. Now, Jordana Pomeroy is the director of the Patricia and Philip Frost Art Museum at Florida International University in Miami. She was formerly at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington where she was the museum's curator of painting and sculpture before 1900 and eventually chief curator. At the National Museum, she co-curated the exhibition Italian Women Artists from the Renaissance to the Baroque and a host of others, including Royalists to Romantics, Women Artists from the Louvre, Versailles and other French national collections. I'm delighted to say that Giordana is with me now. Giordana, you were at one time at the National Museum for Women in the Arts and it seems to me that the museum has played a crucial role in this process of restoring these 
great artists of the Renaissance and Baroque period to some kind of prominence. Would that be fair? I, I that is our, our that is the mission. That is the goal of the museum, uh, not only to restore but to uh, find their proper place in the art historical canon. Uh, so this has been um, that has been the the goal, and also just to tell a different narrative uh, from the one that's ordinarily told. Now, whilst you were there, you curated a show, I think, in two thousand seven, uh, of Baroque and Renaissance women artists. I'd like to know something about the kind of research that went into that show then, because since there's been a lot of, lot more scholarship. But what was the scholarship situation like in 2007? Well, uh, obviously there was much less of it, um, but there were some very good scholars working on the subject. Uh, and of course, you know, starting with uh, Linda Nochlin's Why Are There No Great Women Artists? Uh, and, and, you know, then you move on, there were uh, quite a few uh, articles written on Artemisia, and uh, because she has such an interesting life story based on her rape trial. Um, but there's also, um, uh, there was some information coming out on uh, Lavinia Fontana, and that was an exhibition, uh, I believe it was in Italy, before we had thought of uh, putting a, basically an encyclopedic exhibition together. Uh, so that was that was part of it was just sort of seeing that we were on the cusp of something and and since then there's been a you know a plethora of uh research and writing on the subject of women artists in the period so how did you find the works that that made up that show oh that's a that was a fascinating scavenger hunt uh because unlike the National Museum of Women in the Arts when you go to the Uffizi uh, you don't. You can't say. Listen. Have you categorized your works by gender, please? Um, that at least at the time when I was doing that research, that was not the case. So you always had curators scratching their head. Ah, that's a really good question by women artists. Okay, let me think about that. So uh, we had a couple of people we were working with in Italy, but uh, mostly in Rome and. Uh, and actually another person who just had a sense of where all these works were in private holdings who really had to guide me because I couldn't, as I say, just walk into a museum and say, listen, we're going to take everything you have by women artists. Um, plus there's a lot more to that dance than than just going in and asking anyway. Uh, that was really the answer, is it? And that's the fun part about being a curator is the scavenger hunt. You know, it's not just laid out for you. You have to tell that story. You have to find the works. Uh, finding some of these works on paper was not easy. Uh, it was hard to get some of these loans, like a Propertia de Rossi, uh, was was near impossible. We had a Sofonis Benguesola that um, is is highly valued, and um, but they let it go for this exhibition. So we were very fortunate. I'd like to talk about some of the particular individuals involved. I think let's start with Sofonis Benguesola because she is such an extraordinary artist in ten, in the sense that she was enormously successful to a degree in her time in the sense that she went to the Spanish court. But also she was not from a family of painters which is very unusual. Her background is interesting but she was not from a family of painters. She was recognized for as a prodigy and eventually found a, a court appointment in Spain. And this is, uh, you know, a very unusual narrative. Uh, someone like Lavinia Fontana, her father, of course, had a major studio. She was an apprentice to him. That was the more typical. Same with Artemisia. Um, you know, and then sometimes you had nuns. That's another interesting narrative. People who were largely self-taught 
and and also sold their works. That was that to me actually is one of the interesting parts of women artists is that they couldn't conduct themselves fully in the marketplace. You know, they 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 learned like other artists, but they didn't run their own studios. Their husbands or their brothers, some male figure in their life had to run their studios for them. They were the talent, but in a sense, they they couldn't market themselves uh, because it wasn't allowed for women to transact to be conducting business transactions. And they also had sort of practical restrictions on what they were able to paint, of course, didn't they? Because, for instance, the, one of the key things is they didn't have access to new models. And so, therefore, certain religious subjects and certainly mythological subjects wouldn't have been available to many of them. Well, this is true. But I always like to point out, but you can look at yourself in the mirror if you're a woman artist, right? So, I mean, I'm not so sure how, how true that is. Uh, there, In fact, we at, in that exhibition, I do recall we had one or two nudes which, uh, again, was not considered necessarily appropriate subject matter except in the context of classical mythology or uh, or uh, biblical painting, of course, uh, you know, stories from the Bible. So there were a couple of nudes, but it wasn't typical. No, of course not. It was a genre, still life, uh, portraiture. Those were the sort of the lower echelon of painting, not history painting, not uh, biblical. But then there were just total exceptions to this. You know, Lavinia Fontana painted very large-scale uh, biblical painting, biblical narrative. And that was uh, unusual, but she uh, was in a, you know, considered a one of the masters and uh, had major church commissions. One of the works in that show of yours in 2007, I think, was this extraordinary nude, which is Minerva dressing, yes, which is a mythological subject, of course, and and a a female nude painted by a female artist. Yes. Can you tell us more about that work? Well, uh, that that you know, we don't know a great deal about that work itself, uh, but as I said, that's a, a unusual subject for a woman artist at the time. In fact, really, not until the 20th century. Do you have women painting nudes uh, or photographing nudes, for example? So you think about it, she was so, uh, I don't know, prescient or uh, ex- maybe curious. And uh, no doubt there was a, a private owner. I, I don't recall the details on that uh, painting, but no doubt it, it was a private commission, uh, not meant for public consumption necessarily. Um, one thing about Lavinia is uh, – I always love to bring up her personal story, which I tended not to do with women artists because I think people became too fixated on the personal. But she, uh, you know, her husband was also a painter, but a lesser painter. So he really, uh, you know, sort of threw in the towel and became her manager and signed the contracts, et cetera, et cetera. And she had an extraordinary number of children. Eleven, of, I think. Yeah, some <laughs> of whom lived to, to uh, adulthood. So I always like to think of her on some sort of a scaffold, pregnant, because she was basically eternally pregnant while, while you know, creating these, these, uh, these often very large-scale uh, paintings. And uh, so then I thought maybe she was just a very ambitious person who, who uh, attempted the nude, which was – the greatest feat you could do as a painter was to paint the nude body. She was also a great portraitist, and of course that's where most of her commissions came from. She particularly yes. painted lots of uh, women in, in Bologna. She was almost like the the uh, official painter to, to Bolognese women. Yes, you had to have a Lavinia, you know, exactly, <laughs> paint you, to, 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 which is a lovely idea, you know, that there is this, uh, uh, she had steady patronage, you know, bread and butter kind of thing. Um. Let's talk about Sophonisba. She was 
uh, an intriguing figure because uh, she lived to a very great age. And there's this lovely thing that she met Michelangelo and, in fact, may have been instructed in, in, in drawing by him. Certainly he apparently made uh, comments on her, on, and in fact, in, in a letter to her father, wrote, wrote very warmly of her. But then at the end of her life... She also met Anthony, a very young Anthony Van Dyke. And so it's extraordinary thing is that they, those two ages, the age of Michelangelo and the age of Van Dyke, seem so far apart. And yet this woman artist straddles those, those, those eras, which is extraordinary. Uh, maybe even more extraordinary that they actually recognize her. You know, that is, that's to me the, the more extraordinary part of that story um, because there were so many uh, women artists out there. And I think that was part, that is part of what the ambitions were for this exhibition and others at the National Museum of Women in the Arts to, again, to point out that there are many different strands of, uh, a lot of different stories to be told in art history. Um, and of course, today we, we talk about gender fluidity. We talk about, uh, you know, when I started working at the Women's Museum, we were sort of discovering the women. Now it's sort of blown wide open, everything, right? So um, I think the idea that maybe it's not so extraordinary that they recognize these women. I mean, they were in their midst, correct? So, you know, this is to me uh, our blindness that in fact somebody like Michelangelo or, uh, you know, Van Dyke or anybody else would see that there's a woman there. To us, that seems so extraordinary. To them, it's, yes, well, there's this woman artist. You know, Vasari writes a chapter about women artists. And again, when I started in the field, we always go to that saying, well, isn't that amazing that Giorgio Vasari wrote about women artists? And now that I think about it all these years hence, I think, why wouldn't he write about that? Because they were there. And they were extraordinary. And maybe it was, they weren't uh, considered genius at the same magnitude, but they were included. And it's sort of us who have subsequently um, excluded women. Is there a moment when a very male-dominated view of the history of art becomes more prominent? Can you identify a moment in art history where, I mean, is it in the Enlightenment period, for instance? Is, is that when when genius is defined and encoded in, in, in some way and therefore it becomes associated with ma- maleness in some way? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, you know, it's sort of probably wrapped up with the history of the history of art itself, you know, and who dominated that. Uh, again, you know, you have somebody like Lynn and Auckland, who it's not until the early 1970s and says, where are the women artists? How come we uh, we give preference to genius? And if we give preference to genius, how can we talk about women artists? And so she's really the one who sort of puts her finger on that, is that if all we do is talk about genius and Yes, um, most art historians were men, and that's where they focused their attentions on. Uh, then how can we talk about others who are involved in the creation of visual arts? So she kind of moved us off of that idea of genius to talk about other issues in uh, art history. So I'm, I'm being a little elliptical, I know, but I think that's that's been part of the issue. And, uh, you know, everybody likes to say, well, in fact, when the Women's Museum was created, the founder said she went to Janssen, H.W. Janssen, and couldn't find anything on women artists. Well, Janssen was the textbook we all used. And uh, Janssen was focused on who are the anchors in art history as we've conceived it. And where did that begin? Uh, it, it well began in the 19th century. But again, it's so interesting to look back at Vasari and realize he had included these artists. You know, it was later on that they were uh, excluded as as not being, I guess, the anchors, the major, uh, major names of the time. In a way, did Lyndon Nochlin set the kind of philosophical 
background on which people like yourself and other scholars have then gone on into this programme of research into women artists from the past? Oh, absolutely. She and Anne Sutherland Harris, uh, just by opening up that question, set a new uh, paradigm for thinking about histories in general. Uh, who who do we include? How do we uh, – who makes those decisions? And who makes those decisions is, uh, is kind of uh, – Everybody from you know your art history uh, professor to uh, to yourself, you know, if you decide one day, well, where are the women, and then you set yourself to the task of finding that out, uh, then then you're going to find that you're already changing the you know moving the needle, changing that paradigm, and it's changed very very slowly. That's what I, I have to say. I mean, it's a you know we're here in the 21st century, and I just finished teaching a course on feminist theory. And I thought sadly to myself as I'm looking at these um, uh, students who are all born in the century (laughs) that um, we're still talking about this. And it doesn't feel like it's changed all that much. Do you think that in the Prado having this exhibition in its 200th anniversary year, it might move the needle a little bit further on? Oh, absolutely. It all does. And it's it's lovely. It's just funny when we talk about, you know, that this is a feature not because of just the artist who the artist is, but the fact that she's a woman. Uh, It does recall something that just happened, which is the uh, nomination of Kaywin Feldman to the National Gallery of Art in in Washington. And it's the first woman director. You know, so these things are really important for shattering the glass ceilings that still exist, especially in these, uh, these old master uh, I'll say they they were thought of as mausolea, and now they are living or living changing organisms like museums. I think should be so. In sense, we're saying, oh, okay, this is great. The Prado's uh, changing its attitude, and certainly the gallery here, you know, uh, has as well as really since the last time I was there. I see a lot of different a lot of different kind of artists being featured. Um, one thing that I hadn't been aware of until I started just looking into this was that uh, one of the biggest problems in terms of um, ensuring that women artists are given greater prominence in terms of old master holdings is that so many works by female old masters are actually uh, attributed to male old masters. And oh, there's yes. this whole process of reattribution going on. Tell me something about that. Oh, uh, that is so interesting. Uh, Judith Leister, for example, uh, was a well-known in her uh, time. Uh, she was part of a guild, which was very unusual for women artists. And uh, she, but her her signature was literally painted over by who dealers? I mean, it's a question of the market. As and she was. Uh, promoted as Franz Hals. Her works were promoted as Franz Hals. Uh, this is just purely, um, you know, uh, these sc- scandals that, that dealers were involved in, you know, this kind of s- this idea of reattributing so you could actually uh, ask more money for a Franz Hals than you could for a Judith Leister. And this kind of thing went on for, uh, well, you know, it, for many, many years. Um, certainly through my era of uh, expertise in late 19th century British painting, uh, dealers were, um, uh, this is what they were involved in, is reattribution to make a, make a uh, more money. And that, that's what it came down to. So it, it became really incumbent on us as conservatives started to see this very specific uh, 
signature from Judith Leister, which had stars, and uh, it was it's a really beautiful signature. And so uncovering that literally uncovered her reputation. There's so little known by these women. And again, there'll be more to be uncovered. So now you're at the Frost Museum in, in Miami. Yes. You've put on a show which in which women were the subject of historical paintings in, in a series of works uh, lent from the Ringling Museum. Yes. Uh, will you be doing a show where women are the artists? Well, not probably in the same way as I did at the National Museum of Women in the Arts for a variety of reasons. Uh, the um, I'd, I'd love to explore that but it was such a such it was really the mission at the National Museum of Women in the Arts whereas I'm now at a university museum so we have a sort of wider uh, I'd say wider ber- uh, breadth in terms of our mission to teach students and have our faculty use our 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 museum's uh, collections and and bring all kinds of uh, exhibitions to Miami. So uh, that probably wouldn't be a specific focus. This, I thought, was a really good way, though, especially during the Me Too, because of the Me Too um, movement, to show that these kinds of issues um, about uh, how women have been treated or looked upon um, are, you know, age old, back to biblical times. And that was the part, I always like to try to find a hook, uh, because let me put it this way. Uh, in Miami, uh, stories are everything. You know, Miami is a city of stories. So if you don't tell a good story, it's just going to be boring and nobody's going to take a look at what you have to do. So this is the story of, you know, women as um, subject matter in stories of scandal, lasciviousness, um, as uh, the objects of, of desire and vulnerable as vulnerable people in society and how they often fight back. So this is a, you know, this was the story that I felt had to be told. And the Ringling, thankfully, was closing for conservation or to renovate their their gallery. So it just happened to work out really well for us. Jordana, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it was really a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We'll be back talking about the Gallery Share Initiative Condo after this. Now in its 19th year, Bonham's Gentleman's Library Sale has become a firm fixture of the London auction calendar. Featuring all kinds of objects that may have been found in a Victorian or Edwardian gentleman's library, it's the place to go for everything from tapestries to chess sets, leather armchairs to globes and model locomotives to family portraits. This year's sale takes place on the 30th of January, and among the highlights is a selection of bronze equestrian figures, including a fine version of George Frederick Watts' great statue, Physical Energy, one full-size cast of which stands in Kensington Gardens in London. Watts believed in the power of public art to educate and move, and the piece is the artist's tribute to man's restless quest for betterment. It proved immensely popular, and several smaller versions like this one were cast posthumously. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, in 2016, the London gallerist Vanessa Carlos founded Condo, describing it as a large-scale collaborative exhibition of international galleries in which host galleries share their space with visiting galleries. The phenomenon caught on and versions of Condo have now taken place in New York, Shanghai and Mexico City. The intention is to challenge existing gallery models, to pool resources and to use collaboration to prompt a more experimental spirit in galleries around the globe. 
Among the galleries taking part in this year's event in London, which opened at galleries across the city on the 12th of January, is Kate McGarry, who's had a gallery in London for more than a decade. She's hosting the Hong Kong and Shanghai Gallery Edouard Malang this year, and Kate joins me now. Kate, before we talk about Condo specifically, you've had a gallery in London now for 16 years. Um, how has the gallery scene changed in that time? It's it's changed a lot. It's changed enormously. Um, I mean, when I went to open the gallery, I sort of saw a group of artists I wanted to work with. And I did ask the question, does London need another gallery? Um, and this was in 2002. You know, what difference can I make to the scene? You know, will I have a voice? Is there room for it? Um, and obviously, since then, you know, I don't know how many galleries have opened since then, but the growth has been huge. Um, I opened eight months before freeze and we did the first freeze. So, um, you know, my timing was pretty lucky as well. That's interesting because one of the things, of course, that's happened to galleries in recent years is that the fair boom has happened. Has it massively affected the way that you do business, the way that you plan how you show your artists and that side of it? Um, I think it's gone in waves, really. I mean, the first freeze was incredibly exciting. I was lucky enough to do the first one and I was sort of fresh on the scene. Um, and we hadn't really seen, we hadn't had an international presence like that of all our colleagues in one play in London. Um, Tate Modern has, had obviously opened a couple of years before, um, but this was it was a very exciting time for London. We were really moving into a new era, and we were sort of starting to make comparisons to New York. And we had a museum of modern art, if you like, Tate Modern. Um, so. It, it's it's come in waves. I mean, you know, initially, I think as a very young gallery, you take enormous risks at fairs. And I've done it myself. Probably um, risks that are really too great, actually. Um, you know, the, 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 the need to sort of be seen and push through and be at the right fairs. Um, I've kind of let that go now. I mean, I may be in a stronger position to do that. But, you know, we did Miami early on. I think I've probably taken part in most of the fairs and it does cost a lot of money and it was a risk I mean it sort of paid off in the long run but there have been some rocky rocky times in between the perception is that the fairs are the way that the galleries make money are you, are you therefore saying that actually that isn't necessarily the case you know they it's it's really it's really mixed I mean you know you have fairs that do really well I mean I'm much more careful now about what I take where I really think it through. I think in the early days, and as a young gallery, you need to do that. You need to sort of take your artist's work and try it, you know, and, and, and it's a big risk. Um, and, I'm, you know, I think if you don't go through that process, maybe you don't make it through. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think you really do have to really, really look at the numbers. I mean, we've now, we're now in the situation where we, we don't do the majority of our business at fairs. I know I hear from galleries that that is the case for them. Um, I'm not sure how that's happened. I just really, I suppose early on, I decided to um, try and have a more sort of stable business model where I wasn't relying on the fares um, and uh, makes for a more peaceful life. <laughs> but also, does it not therefore reinforce the importance of the gallery programme? Because I think one of the, another aspect of this that, that, that has been much talked about is how fares affect the quality of the shows that are done in between the fairs. And I think, you know, you've always had a really strong gallery programme. You know, your shows are well thought out, they're well considered. 
that might not always be the case with galleries who do prioritise the fairs, I guess. Yeah, I mean, in 2011, I did too many fairs and I just burnt myself out. And it's definitely, you know, we're a really small team. You know, we're a team of four, really, at the maximum. So it's just kind of crazy to, to do that. I mean, I've always, I enjoy the gallery exhibitions. I think at the core of a commercial gallery, you know, the programme for the artists is actually really important, having their shows in the gallery. Um, we talk a lot about new models, not having to pay rent, not having to pay expensive um, rates. But actually, um, the artists, you know, in terms of the identity of the gallery, the space is still really core. And I can't see a time yet when I'd be ready to not have that um, as a sort of stabilising factor of the gallery, really. It's a big statement. Um you know, I'm not saying fairs aren't important. They are because, you know, otherwise we sit in the gallery and we wait for people to come in. And that's one of our biggest challenges at the moment is getting people through the door. Um, and when you say people, do you mean members of the public and collectors? Or yeah. Do you mean, yeah. Everyone, students, interested parties, collectors, press, you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really, um, it's well, that's a benefit that the artist has as well from 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 good good visitor numbers so condo is being proposed as a new kind of model for gallery exhibitions how necessary is it do you think i think it's very necessary i mean what's happened with condo um is i think it's just the grouping together of the galleries just comes across as a strong voice and i think we just really need that at the moment um, it's been initiated by Vanessa Carlos, Carlos Ishigawa Gallery. And there have been attempts in the past to do something similar. There were gallery swaps in the early 2000s um, where, you know, galleries really upped, left their galleries and swapped with someone else, say in New York. I think people even swapped apartments, which was a great idea. But it, it didn't roll in the way that Condo has and it didn't capture people's imagination in the way that Condo has. Um, and I think the key to that is that while you're swapping, you're not with each other. Um, although you sort of inhabit each other's galleries and there's there's a benefit in that. Condo is about actually sitting with your colleagues. Um, and we've just done that last weekend with Edouard Malin Gallery um, from Hong Kong and Shanghai. And it's just, it's a process of learning. And I think in the current climate... Um, Galleries can't afford to not talk to each other. Um, and that's been a really positive experience for us with Condo. It was really well attended, um, really well organised. Didn't cost the galleries anything, which is really remarkable. How does it not cost the galleries anything? I'm not sure how Vanessa did that, but uh, well done. Um, you know, mo- usually gallery weekends are quite famous for being quite expensive for galleries, even though they're sitting in their own premises. So that was really remarkable. So, it's, so you, you, get, you get a bit of money to, to help you out with this process, basically? No, it's just doesn't, it doesn't, um, there's no fees in, involved, you know. It's just um, very much led by the galleries being in charge of their own. Obviously, the galleries that visit need to make the journey and bring some work with them, but that's it. And how much control over who you show in the gallery? Do you, I mean, do you get a, a, a list of other galleries that you, you might share with or, or how does it work? Yeah, it was really a conversation with Vanessa. I said I was quite keen to host someone that I didn't know very well um, or that maybe hadn't met just sort of and potentially someone from Asia as well. I um, thought I might learn something from that. And um, actually, I had, I had met Edouard previously, briefly. So... Um, and there was one of his artists, artists I'm interested in. So it was a, really a chat with Vanessa and uh, it was all sorted in about five minutes. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and, and you have this 
approach that you've taken, which is five of your artists and five of his. Um, is that was that a sort of mutual discussion, or did you sort of cherry pick the artist? No, we just sat down together and we just sort of looked at each other's websites really and went through the lists and we just sort of. I think initially we started with four each and we decided to try and make a group show. Um, you know, there was no great curatorial premise, but um, we've just actually ended up with five artists each and uh, we just picked particular works that somehow created a thread. And are you seeing, like, was there a big presence of collectors, for instance, at the opening weekend? Um, not a huge presence. Um, I think, you know, there were collectors that came through and, and people really do their research or curators coming through. Um really big young audience coming in. Um, but um, just a feeling of, of um, yeah, of a dialogue, you know. Um, and of course, you know, the the, host, the gallery, visiting gallery, bring they're all their contacts gather then in our space. So it's a way of making new friends. One of the things about Condo is that it's, I mean, on the whole, we're talking about young galleries and what we might call, and I know this is a term which is disputed by lots of lots of galleries but this sort of mid mid market galleries and i suppose you might be grouped in that mm. in that in that, mm. uh, that at that level we've heard a lot about mid market galleries really struggling and several in london and elsewhere have gone out of business recently is it hard for a gallery that isn't a mega gallery or a very young gallery to sort of continue to make its mark um i think it does get challenging i mean when you first you know, when we first opened, we had a lot of press, you know, for probably that lasted a two or three years. I mean, it's, um, I think the term mid-gallery, yeah, you don't really want to get stuck with that. I mean, it's 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 really just the sort of business model that really counts in the end. I mean, we work with a few rather established artists in a way. We work with the states, but we're still a very small team and we don't fly out to all the art fairs. So, I feel like we've got a sustainable model. So um, although we could be sort of put in that bracket, we're not trying to imitate or keep up with the bigger galleries. Um, you know, it's, I think that's probably key. Um, and just to make a point that, of course, you know, some more established galleries are involved in Condo, which I think is really great. Um, you know, Sadie Coles does it and Maureen Paley. Um, and I think that makes the dialogue really even more interesting. Um, that's something I'd like to see more of, young galleries working with really big mega galleries, actually. I'd like to see how that could work. Obviously, because Condo is an international project, one of the interesting aspects from my point of view is to what extent are there different kinds of art arriving in London through this process? Or to what extent are we looking at a genuinely completely international style that may exist right across the world? What, what's your perception? Hmm. That's tricky. I mean, I think, I think that international style and that sort of shared experience is is becoming real. So, for example, you know, you can meet a colleague from a gallery in Guatemala, and their experiences and their their struggles are the same as as anyone's representing artists, or the the things they want to achieve are the same. Um, having said that, I think Condo and its kind of economy of means allows surprises. To, to come about. So the fact that some of the gallerists are probably bringing projects in their suitcase or or, or inviting artists to do uh, performances, um, there's always going to be new voices that we haven't heard and that we might not hear through the, say, focus section of an art fair, which does require um, financial backing to do. Another thing about Condo being so international, of course, is at the moment we're in the UK dealing with the whole Brexit mess. Um, to what extent do you see this as a sort of symbolic 
process in terms of spelling out the sort of international and global outlook of London galleries and to what extent also uh, is is Brexit a kind of threat to the gallery system in the UK, do you feel? Yeah, I think Brexit is a sad, sad reality that we're looking at at the moment. I mean, it's um, I'm sure that, you know, out of adversity come good things and I'm sure sort of the philosophy of Condo has come out of some of these frustrations. I don't know whether it's directly Brexit really. I think it's just the reality of the market and how you get your artists voices out I've I'm applying to Freeze London with uh, French artist Bernard Pifferetti um, I'm showing him hope want to show him there in October a solo exhibition and I'm thinking I'm going to try and ship the works before before March um, because because I don't know what the future holds it's really unhelpful for businesses on a you know bottom line to not know what's going to happen it just seems like we're creating problems for ourselves and everyone else so yeah it's a very depressing time so we need positive positive action and condo represents that absolutely yeah and you know it may not last forever i mean out of condo um condo have produced an app as well um which the galleries that are taking part have put a few works on and you know the the project may change in the future as political winds change or as our needs as gallerists change it's exciting to see what might happen next kate thank you so much for joining me thank you Condo continues at various galleries in London until the 9th of February. You can find out more at condocomplex.org. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. The main art newspaper Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper, and you can find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. You can subscribe to our monthly print edition of The Art Newspaper at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. Thanks to Letizia, Giordana and Kate, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week when we'll be looking at two major exhibitions, Bill Viola and Michelangelo in London and Robert Maplethorpe in New York. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.